0: Well, welcome to New Hope on this hot July morning, when most of Michigan is up north, right? And we're in this air-conditioned building. This is good. Everybody here have electricity? Get your power back after the storm that went through? Yeah? Nobody without it? Okay, good. So we're going to jump back into our study, the portrait. Um, I was gone last weekend, as I told you, and Lori and I got to get away for a few days after our son Derek and Kristen's wedding. And uh, we came back on Thursday this week, heard you guys had that big storm, and Gary preached for me last weekend, so it was nice to get away and get refreshed, and came back and saw that there had been a little bit of waterfall while I was gone, but not a lot apparently, because my lawn is still pretty crispy. So I still have a grateful heart in the midst of it, though. Farmers seem to be growing their crops okay, and things went on without me. But here we are finding ourselves back into this study where we left off at two weeks ago. And uh, back in the book of John, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to John chapter 16 and uh, you'll pick up where we left off at. John 16 and verse 1, we ended with John chapter 15, finding the, the Bible to be extraordinarily unique in its clarity. We talked about relativism two weeks ago and how everybody finds so much gray area, but yet the Bible is very black and white, speaks very directly and specifically. You're going to find that again this morning with what Jesus has to say. If you have John chapter 16, go to verse 1, and that's where we're going to be this morning. And let's see what he has to remind us of. This is Jesus speaking. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. What's he referring to? These things. these things that were the warning back in John chapter 15, the things that he reminded us of that we're supposed to be concerned about. Apparently, the greatest danger as a result of the opposition that can come against us is that you and I would stumble. And literally, he's talking about apostasy there. I'll explain that in just a minute. Now, remember, if you were here during the study of John chapter 15, that he was warning that the world of non-believers, the the greater mass of society who does not follow Jesus Christ, who stand opposed to the things of God. He was warning that there would be hostile action towards Christians. And he's saying that as a result of the opposition, there's a potential that you're going to stumble. That means that there's a byproduct when your friends, your co-workers, your family members... Your neighbors stand against the things of Christ, individuals whom you try to share the things of Christ with. There's a danger that when they stand so firmly against it, that it might cause you to waver and stumble. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you up front, I want you to be aware of these things so that you may be kept from stumbling. So these things, he's referring back to 15. If you didn't get a chance to look at that, look at it later. He wants us to know we're not going to go astray. So here's the truth. If the danger was real when Jesus said it, and it's real 50-some years later when John wrote it, John's in his 90s, the danger is still very real today because God wouldn't have said it if it wasn't true, if it wasn't an issue that he wanted us to be aware of. So what's this word stumbling You might be very familiar with it because many of the English words that we have today come from the Greek language, but the the word that he used is Scandalizo, and it's the word scandal, the word that we use today in the English language. But literally, this is the meaning that it has, to entrap or to entice someone to sin. That's the ancient meaning for it, scandal, scandalizo. And it speaks very specifically of the bait that sits in the middle of a trap that was used to ensnare an animal. So what Jesus wanted the disciples to be aware of is there's a potential for you to be caught off guard like an ensnared animal. You thought you were going for a good thing and you found out it was a bad thing and you're trapped in the midst of it. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard. So here's the strength of this warning. Expecting trouble helps us to remain in the path of God's will. And I don't mean by that that you need to be a pessimist looking for trouble every place around every bush That's not what he's talking about here. We're not talking about pessimistic behavior. It means anticipated that there will be opposition. Because had Jesus not warned of the persecution, the disciples would have been shocked and disillusioned when they started being murdered, stoned, whipped. Remember, it's only within weeks of Jesus saying this that Peter and John walk into the temple and they're taken as prisoners and thrown into the dungeon. Their clothes are stripped from them. They're beat with whips because of what they said about Jesus. And if Jesus hadn't warned them of the persecution, they could have been just as shocked as you might be. But that's why he's giving the warning up front. Later that evening, the events that happened as Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane shows the relevance of the warning. Now remember, we've been looking at the Last Supper. They've left the upper room They're walking through the Kidron Valley to get to the area of the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they're on their way, Jesus gives them a very stern reminder of what they're going to do. Look with me up on the screen at Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 31, they're on the journey. He says this to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's quoting the Old Testament. And in truth... The guards came. They got the arrest warrant in their hand. They've got Judas at their side. They're carrying swords and torches. And as soon as they come, what happens to the disciples? They're gone. Persecution came. And Jesus is telling them, I want you to know in advance this is going to happen. And in the coming weeks and months, they're going to face excommunication from the synagogue. Go with me to verse 2. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. So the persecution comes in two stages. The first stage is social. He's talking about society here. They're going to be outcasts from the synagogue. And this is a pressing first century threat. If you were a Jewish individual who lived in in Israel at that period of time and you were told you were going to be excommunicated from the synagogue, it had far deeper meaning than just being locked outside the doors of the building, being told you couldn't come into worship anymore. Historically, here's what we understand. Because the Jewish community was so intertwined in their faith and their society together that if someone abandoned what they believe, abandoned the things of what they understood God to be, they branded them as a traitor to their nation, to their fellow countrymen, and to their God. And so they were unsynagogued. They were put out. And when they were put out, they were cut off from all social economic advantages, meaning if they owned a business in town, everyone in the community would shun them and no longer do business with them. So they're losing their economic source of income. These guys are fishermen. No one's going to buy their fish anymore. How long can you feed your family if you have no customers? You can eat your own product, but they're going to be excommunicated. They're going to be put out of the synagogue, unsynagogued, and it's very likely that their family members, who were not Christians, would also shun them for life and shut them off. They would be dead to them. So that's the first stage. The second stage, Jesus says, an hour is coming when they're going to kill you. It's not just that they're going to unsynagogue you, they're going to kill you. And that's the crucial turning point. When the wrath of the world was focused on Jesus and they killed him, once they did away with Jesus, they then turned their wrath towards the disciples. That's why the disciples locked themselves in the upper room the night of the crucifixion. They were afraid that they were going to be next. Now, we understand Christians have faced severe persecution in the last 2,000 years since Jesus said this, sometimes in the name of Yahweh, sometimes in the name of Allah, sometimes in the name of Marx, meaning man. So we've got individuals who have killed Christians in the name of the one true God, thinking they understood God, and then we have individuals who have killed Christians in the name of a false God meaning Allah, God, small g. And we have individuals who have killed Christians in the name of other men. Uh, You only have to go back in history not very far. Uh, Look at the Spanish Inquisitions, the, the Catholic Spanish Inquisitions or the killings during the time of the Reformation. There were many killings that took place throughout history when people found individuals who didn't believe in God the way they thought they should, and so they executed them. You understand that before Paul became a believer in Jesus, the man Saul, before his name was changed to Paul, was killing Christians. That was what he felt he was called to do. Look with me up on the screen. We're kind of like looking into his diary here in Acts 22, but he's telling some Roman soldiers about what he used to be like. And he said this, I persecuted this way, the way meaning the name for the Christians at that time. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. Because as a Jew, he thought that was his service to God. That's what he thought he was supposed to do. And today, in our lifetime in 2012, there are nations around the world that support militant Islam, which is killing Christians. They stand violently opposed to the things of Jesus. And Jesus said, you should expect this. And they're going to do this because they don't know the Father or they don't know me. And they're acting in ignorance. And I don't mean they're ignorant as an insult, but rather they have no relationship with God at all. They don't really know God, even though they think they do. Verse 4, it says this, But these things I have spoken to you, so that when their hour comes you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Now we've said as we're working through this study called The Portrait, we're going to be looking for the brush strokes that Jesus made on the canvas, helping us to understand what God looks like. Because John 1.18 says, no man's seen God, but Jesus has explained him. Well, here's another one of those brushstrokes, because what you see about the character of God in that statement is Jesus never glosses over the truth. He never gives something to us varnished. It's always straightforward. And he wants us to know what we're supposed to expect. So this hostility he's talking about in chapter 15, he's saying the persecution is going to come. It may not come in your corner of the world, in Michigan, in the greater metro area, in Lansing in your lifetime. I don't know. But Jesus is saying, around the world, globally, the Christian church will be persecuted because we stand opposed to the things of Satan. Look with me up on the screen, Luke 9.23. This is the reminder that's very blatant. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now, he entitled this period of time, Their Hour. He said, Their Hour, when they're in control. It appears that the oppressors have the upper hand, but that's the moment of the greatest victory. The moment when Jesus appeared to have the greatest defeat, being nailed to the cross from the eyes of the world, he's been conquered But from the eyes of God, we understand that's the greatest of all victories. It's when he defeated death, church. So what appears to be their hour is really, in effect, the time of victory. Now, interestingly, Jesus says, I did not say this to you at the beginning. Maybe they would have left if he had three years earlier. But he said, I did not say this to you at the beginning because you're on a need-to-know basis. That's the truth. If you're following God, he gives you as much information as you can handle at the time you can handle it. And that's all he gives you. I did not tell you this at the beginning. He shielded them. He's absorbed all the opposition himself up until this point, and he's taken on the full force of the hostility. But now, in his absence, they're going to take it on. You and I are going to take it on if we stand for the things of God. Now, hostility can actually deepen and strengthen your resolve. You know that if you've encountered individuals who have stood hostile and gotten in your face and argued with you. And really have opposed the things of God, you understand that hostility can strengthen you. It can also weaken you. But in many cases, it'll strengthen your resolve because there's a sense of assurance that what is happening to you in that moment is not outside the knowledge or the control of God because He sees all these things and He's telling us in advance. Go with me to verse 5. But now I'm going to Him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, there seems to be a contradiction here. And if you love theology, you remember Thomas and Peter just in the previous two chapters have said, hey, where are you going? What do you mean you're leaving us? So they did ask that question. So what's the contradiction? Because Jesus just said right there, none of you ask me where are you going? Well, there's an intonation here in the way that it's stated. It is not a flagrant contradiction here. He's not saying they never asked the question. What he's saying, they've never asked the question thoughtfully about why and where he's going and what the purpose of it is. They're so absorbed in self-loss. They're not concerned about Jesus. So the earlier questions that they asked, that's more of a protest. What are you, where are you going? What do you mean you're leaving us? Not as though they're concerned with the answer. They're concerned about their own future. So that's why he says what he does in verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, if you don't mind, if you have your own Bibles this morning or you want to take one of those with you that's in the pew rack. You're welcome to do that as a a gift from New Hope to you if you don't own a Bible. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. So if you've got a Bible open and and you don't mind writing it, I would circle the word you. It's very important to remember that component in the context of what Jesus just said. I will send him to you and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin. Here's the truth and the reason I want you to circle that. The Spirit comes to you, to the church personally, not to the world at large. The Spirit works through you independently. He works through the church. He does not work in a vacuum. That's why you are equipped with the gifts of the Spirit. You've been given the abilities. So just as Jesus, God's Son, had a body on earth to work and accomplish His purposes, so the Spirit of God has a body, the church, to accomplish the purposes of God. And his purposes is, we are his tools. And he wants to use us to witness for him, to witness to a lost world. This is the way Dr. Warren Wiersbe summed it up. I want you to see his quote on the screen, talking about the Spirit. The Spirit does not float in some ghostly way down the rows of a church. The Holy Spirit works through the people in whom he resides. The Holy Spirit at Pentecost empowered Peter to preach. The preaching of the word brought conviction to those who heard. Now, we're about to get a primer on how the Holy Spirit operates. And you want to pay very close attention because what you see going on here is God talking about God, God the Son talking about God the Spirit. And he's going to give us a description of how this happens. So look with me very closely. I've identified, and I put it in your notes this morning, but on the screen also, the two reasons, first of all, that I see that the Holy Spirit did not come until after Christ's resurrection. We understand that the Holy Spirit came at the time called Pentecost. The first one, the Spirit's ministry is to reveal the person and the work of Christ. He couldn't do that until after Jesus was resurrected and Jesus ascended to glory. And at that point, the Spirit could then come and reveal the person and the work of Christ in the minds of his followers. So that's the first reason. But I want you to understand the second reason, which I find to be even more profound. Understand that the word Pentecost is associated with a festival or a feast in the Jewish calendar. So as New Testament believers, we look at Pentecost and we think, oh, well, that's to do with the arrival of the Holy Spirit on planet Earth when God sent him. But we understand if we look at Jewish history that Pentecost was actually a festival in the Jewish calendar. And so all the Jews were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost, the festival. That's why they were all in town together. Now, Jews understood that the arrival of the Holy Spirit that God had promised in the Old Testament meant that God's kingdom had arrived on earth, that he was there to do his work. So they were constantly looking for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know what it would look like or how to anticipate it. So on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up in that crowd among thousands of people and began to preach in the power of the Spirit and men surrounding him were speaking in different tongues from different nations, and people couldn't understand what was going on, he stopped and he had to explain to them what was going on. Let me show you this on the screen in Acts 2.33. Acts 2.33 says this, therefore, Peter speaking, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So all these individuals, thousands, and I mean tens of thousands, were gathered in Jerusalem, and they're seeing this action take place, and they don't understand it. So Peter's saying, "What you're seeing is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit." So that's why point point number two in your notes. And uh, Brandon, would you mind going back one slide? I want to I want you to see point number two again. So that's why I said point number two: the Father gave the Spirit to the church to vindicate the Son. Here's how He was vindicated. Throughout the entire life of Jesus on earth, Israel stood opposed to him. The great majority rejected him, believing that he was not the Messiah. But when Jesus was killed and then resurrected and then ascended to the glory of God, and in response to that, God poured out his spirit upon the earth... They had to receive what they're seeing in their very eyes. They're seeing men who were not from their own nations speaking in tongues they could understand and that vindicated everything that Jesus had been saying. God gave the spirit and brought vindication to all that Jesus had been saying. So here's one of the promises that comes from the book of Joel from the Old Testament, Joel 2.28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. That's one of many promises from the Old Testament that God made, that's God speaking, in which he said, there's a time coming when the Messiah arrives, I will pour out my spirit. And do you notice it doesn't say I will pour out my spirit on Jews? It says all mankind. That's why they were seeing people speak in every tribe, in every tongue, in every nation could understand what they were saying, not just the Jewish nation. So they had to do this uh, This component of seeing that Jesus had now been vindicated. Now back up with me just for a moment to verse 7 because Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away, that I do this. What he's saying is it's better to be alive now when you see the Holy Spirit working after the coming of the Spirit than what it would have been to live before that period of time. We get to see things here in 2012 during the church age that people who lived in ancient days like Noah and Daniel, Isaiah, Moses, they never got to see. They never see people come to God repenting of their sin and turning towards Christ and following him. Let me just show you a very brief example here in the church. I've done this in every service so far. If you came to Christ as an individual, as an adult, 18 years of age or later, would you mind raising your hand? Okay, just look around the auditorium. That is the evidence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. God working in the lives of adults, people who had not previously followed God. But because of the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, you came to a realization that I need a relationship with God. I need a savior. I'm telling you that the ancients never saw that. They never saw individuals turning and beginning to follow God in the adult years of their life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's just one of the evidences. So Jesus is saying, keep your thoughts in check. It's to your advantage that I go away. As a result of my going away, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to bring conviction on the world concerning sin. He says that's one of the Spirit's ministries is to convict the world. At some point, you and I came to a place where we felt the conviction of God upon us, and we turned our life over to Christ and began to follow him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the word that Jesus used here, translated in the Greek language, is eleneko. And I want you to see this because we have different meanings for the word convict. Can you imagine being someone who's from China, let's say, and you've been job transferred to the United States, and as part of your responsibilities, you have to learn the English language. Did, did you know that the English language is the most difficult language to learn in the entire world because we have so many different meanings for one word. The word "convict" would be an example of that. You could think of a convict, and what do you think of? Someone in prison." OK? But then there's the word "convict," meaning someone feels the sense of awareness that, uh, I'm not real comfortable with this. I feel the weight of God upon me. That's conviction." So we've got these multiple meanings. So fortunately, Jesus used this word, el, el echo, meaning that the Holy Spirit is going to present or expose facts to convince of the truth. And that's what happened for you when you came to a point where you realized you needed a relationship with Jesus Christ. You were convinced of it. So the Holy Spirit works on the minds of the unsaved, showing the truth of God for what it is. He creates an inescapable awareness of the presence of sin in your life. Now let's understand based on what we've looked at so far, there can be no conversion to God without conviction. It's not possible. And there can be no conviction apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So that means no one can be saved apart from the Spirit's work in your life. I talk to Christians all the time who say, I just wish I could see like some evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. Other people talk about it all the time. Why don't I ever see the evidence of God working in my life? Well, the very fact that you came to Christ is the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Let me show you this. Romans 3.10, this is what Paul wrote. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. So you didn't do it on your own. You came to Christ Because the Holy Spirit was working on you, tugging you. Every time you open up God's Word and you see things, that's the Holy Spirit working on you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now let's look at what Jesus had to say in verses 9, 10, and 11 about the workings of the Holy Spirit, the independent actions. Verse 9, first of all, he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Verse 10, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you no longer see me. Verse 11, And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the Holy Spirit brings conviction about three things. What are the three things? Very quickly. First of all, concerning sin. And here we're not talking about sin in general. We're talking about the very specific sin, the ultimate sin of refusing to believe in Jesus Christ. And back that up with Scripture. John three eighteen says this: He who believes in Him, Christ, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, it's unbelief that condemns someone, and this confuses a lot of people, because many individuals think that they get to heaven based on how good they are. I go to funerals all the time with individuals who say something like this: Oh. They were such a good person, they deserve to be there. And that's not true. Your goodness does not deserve you the right to be with God. That's not what earns you your place. See, a person can clean up their life, they can quit their bad habits, and still be headed to hell because your goodness doesn't do it. It's the grace of God. The work through Jesus Christ in your life, it's the relationship. So unbelief is what condemns, not the committing of individual sins. Here's the second thing that the Holy Spirit does. He convicts concerning righteousness, because that's the converse of convicting versus sin. It's one thing to recognize you got sin on your life, and the Holy Spirit coming down and saying, man, you got to deal with this issue in your life. But it's another thing to be convicted concerning who the righteous one is. So the second work of the Holy Spirit is to convict concerning righteousness. To cause people to realize it's impossible for me to have salvation and a relationship with God apart from Jesus. And here's the third thing that he does. He convicts concerning judgment of the ruler of this world. Who is that? Satan. We told, we're told according to 1 John 5, Satan is the ruler of this world, the prince and the power of the air. And do you know that he's already been judged? When he was cast from heaven with the fallen angels, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, I was there. I was there when Satan fell from heaven like lightning. That was God throwing Satan, Lucifer, from his presence because he judged him. He judged him and threw him to this domain where he has free reign his sentence has not been carried out yet so he's like a death row inmate he's free to roam right now but he's been judged he's been cast out of God's presence and so the Holy Spirit has convicted this ruler of the world he's already been judged and the way that it's written here we understand it's fixed and it's permanent it cannot be changed So here's what we understand based on what we've looked at for what Jesus has said. God is talking about God, remember? God the Son talking about God the Spirit. Here's what we understand. Only two possible responses to the work of the Holy Spirit. Repentance or rejection. There is no middle ground. There's no gray area whatsoever. It's black and white. You either repent and follow the work of the Spirit in your life, Or you reject it and say, "Nah, not going there, not interested. So let's follow up now and see what else Jesus has to say. Verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, I understand Jesus is talking to the 11. He's talking to the disciples right here. But this is consistent with the nature and character of God to give you what you can handle. So I'm in this conversation with my dad this week, and we're talking about these issues that are unfolding in his life. And he says, you know, um, with cancer, I'm, I'm coming to the place where I'm... I'm okay with accepting that my days are limited because it's appointed unto man once to die. God tells us that. But what I'm struggling with is understanding the purpose. What's the purpose in this? I, I threw out a few ideas for him of what God could do as a result of his walk and his witness. But here's the truth. God doesn't choose to always reveal to us everything that we want to know because he says right there in verse 12 I have many more things to say to you but you can't handle it you cannot bear it right now now in true in context he's talking to the disciples and he wants them to understand they're not at a place spiritually they're not at a place maturity wise where they can handle everything that he has them to know so what he tells them in a very direct statement the revelation The things that we know about Jesus Christ as as a result of the Last Supper this particular evening is incomplete because the disciples are not sufficiently advanced in their understanding to be able to process it. So he says he will guide you into all truth. And there's the second function of the Holy Spirit, to serve as a guide. You notice that many times when I start out a service, I begin praying for our church and every one of the services I teach in that God would be our instructor through the Holy Spirit because Jesus said he is our guide into all the truth. I've, many times, many of you understand that I, I uh, like to go hunting and, and fishing. And sometimes when I go fishing in Alaska, um, I hire a guide because I'm going into territory I don't know. It's unfamiliar to me. And I could kind of ruin my week one I'm there if I don't have someone to guide me. Come alongside me. Show me this area that's unfamiliar to me. Well, the disciples were going into unfamiliar territory. And that's why Jesus used that very specific word. He's going to come alongside and he's going to guide you. He's going to bring bearing for you, directional compass. Now, he's speaking very specifically to the disciples. So in verse 13, maybe you want to write this in the back of your Bible, but this is part of the basis of the authority of the disciples writing the New Testament. And I'm going to explain to you as we move forward here into this last verse how we got the New Testament because Jesus just said it right there in that passage. Verse 13 is the basis of the authority of Jesus, God's Son, saying that the apostolic writings that you hold in your hand today would come from those 11 individuals who walked with him. And he's saying the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all the truth. And he won't speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, that's what he's going to disclose to you, that things that are to come. So we understand because of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the disciples understood that everything they were writing down, they got out their ink, they got out their, their quill, they got out the parchment, and when they began to write, they understood it was working through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look with me on the screen as a reminder of that. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament, understanding that what they're writing down was the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. So today, the Holy Spirit is our teacher, he's our guide. He teaches us the truth that we need to know. He gives us the information when we need it, when we're able and ready to handle it. Have you ever had a time when you're working through the Bible? You read a verse that maybe you've read 10, 20, 30, 40 times in your life, and you look at it and say, I must have read that 100 times. I never saw that before. Ever had that happen to you? Don't tell me I'm the only one. Okay, That's the Holy Spirit revealing things to you at the moment when you're ready to handle it. Things that you hadn't seen previously that you didn't understand. That's the Holy Spirit revealing truth to you. Things that you can handle. So based on what Jesus just said there in verses 12 and 13, let me tell you about how the New Testament developed the thing that you hold in your hand today. First of all, the development of the New Testament Scriptures, this is in your notes this morning, and I'm going to show it to you up on the screen. The development of the New Testament Scriptures came this way. The the Spirit would remind the disciples of what Jesus had taught them. He promised us that in John 14, 26. Look what he said up on the screen. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So that's how we got the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the disciples looking back, remembering what Jesus had said because the Holy Spirit brought them to mind. That's what Jesus said would happen. And so as a result of that, we have the four Gospels. Now here's the next component. The Spirit, this is in your notes also, the Spirit will also guide them into all truth. That's where we get the epistles from. Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, the disciples were guided into truth by the holy spirit so that they could understand and put the pieces together. And then the last part, made Jesus made this statement, he will show you also things to come. What's he talking about there? Revelation, the book of Revelation, and Thessalonians, when it says that Jesus will return in the twinkling of an eye and will be all changed instantly. That's all what Jesus is speaking of here when he says he will show you things to come. Uh, We understand the inspiration that we have of the Bible, the thing that you hold in your hand every week, includes all of Scripture. According to 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. But that extends to the very words used. I don't know if you knew that before. But in the original writings, in the Hebrew and Greek or Aramaic translations, right to the very original words. Let me show you this on the screen. It comes from 1 Corinthians 2. Now that we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, pay attention, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those, meaning words, Taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So, the original translations that we had are the words of God. So, church, when you're holding this, you've got God's word in your hand. God breathed according to Scripture. That's why it's capable of discerning the thoughts dividing right to the very soul. That's what Scripture says. It's so alive and active, it's sharper than the sharpest blade. That's how the Spirit can bring conviction because God's Word is alive. So this is where we end this morning in verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So imagine this, the spirit of truth, that's what the Holy Spirit's called, the spirit of truth spoke directly to the apostles about the invisible God to the degree that Paul could even write, we understand the image of the invisible God Because of what we have through these words that the Holy Spirit has given us. So the Spirit worked in the apostles so that they could perceive and understand and teach about the Savior. And that's his central purpose, to bring glory to God. And so when the Holy Spirit did this for them and they passed it on to us, we find ourselves having to accept that we do not study the word of God in order to argue with our friends and neighbors and co-workers or family members and we don't study the word of God to show off our grasp of scripture say wow you're really wise but rather we study the word of God to see Jesus and to know God so that We can witness. It's our job to witness. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask for that reminder for our church this week. We take on the responsibilities of the things that are yet unknown in the days ahead of us. God, I ask that you would remind us it's not our job to convict. That's your job. It's our job to witness about the things that you have done in our life and how you have transformed our life and how you have changed us. Let us speak, Father, of the things that we know, and that's that you have transformed us. We've witnessed to that this morning, Father, by taking communion. And we tell the world that we believe not only that you died for us, but that you're coming again. God, I ask that you would look upon this time that we spent studying your word and that you would bless it. And in light of the things that we don't know, what this week holds, and you do, we ask that you help us to be bold even when we feel like wavering, even when we feel threatened. Help us not to stumble. Make us strong in our walk with you, Father. We ask this in the name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.